0: It was 2000, a movie called Men of Honor came out. It starred Cuba Gooding Jr. and Robert De Niro. Um, in a moment, I wanna share a clip with you from this movie and it has some adult language in it. So parents, if you, any of you have your kids in here with you for any reason, I just wanna let you know that that is coming, do with that what you will. So the movie is inspired by a true story of Master Chief Petty Officer Carl Brashear who was, oh someone's clapping already, who was the first African American master diver in the United States Navy. So Carl, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., has to overcome many obstacles on his way to achieving this. Not only is it very hard to achieve this status in the first place, but he obviously also faces racism during that time. His master chief is Robert De Niro. Um, And Carl achieves his goal. If I'm ruining this movie for you, I'm sorry, you've had 17 years to see it. So Carl achieves his goal, Um, he becomes a master diver, he goes on to become a hero, he saves someone's life, and he also gets in a, a bad accident and he ends up losing one of his legs. And so everything that he has worked for, all of his goals and the dreams that he had now achieved are now dead. And so after much anguish, Carl decides he's going to get a prosthetic leg and he wants to regain his status as master diver. But no Navy man to this point had ever come back and returned to full active duty um, with a prosthetic limb. It had never been done. And so he enlists De Niro to help him. And the culminating scene at the end of the movie is he's on a trial of sorts with the Navy. He has to prove to them that he can actually do this. Um, And so he's standing in this courtroom And he has to take 12 steps with the gear on. And what you need to know about this gear, the gear of the divers at that time, the gear weighs 290 pounds, 290 pounds. And so they would have to put this gear on. They would have to dive to 300 feet and then be able to walk with all of this. And so he has to prove to them in the courtroom that he can do this because it's hard enough to do it with two legs, much less to have a prosthetic. So let's watch this scene.
1: wear that ring and approach the rail Stand down. Diver, you will disregard. This is my I'm detail. Broken. Cookie, move your ass. I want my 12.
0: Nine. The Navy diver is not a fighting man, he is a salvage expert.
1: water, he finds it. If it's sunk, he brings it up. If it's in the way, he moves it. 11. If he's lucky, he will die young 200 feet beneath the waves, for that is the closest he will ever get to being a hero. Hell, I don't know why anybody would want to be a navy diver. Now you report to this line, cookie.
0: had turned in a way that he had never expected it ended up something happening and he faced this death of all of his hopes and dreams and he had to struggle and work his way into his new life it was 2007 September night it was the night that my brother-in-law passed which I've shared with many of you some of this story but I remember that night like it was yesterday He passed in the afternoon at the hospital and we were all there with him and we went home and I, during that season, um, about eight months when he started the chemo up until he um, passed away, I was the spiritual leader. Um, I was the pastor long before I was a pastor in title for our family and so I had to stay strong and I did. I remember we got home that afternoon and Ben and I made it back to the house and everyone split off to just go take a shower. And I remember I got in the shower and as that water hit me, I was flooded with all of the emotions that I didn't allow myself to feel until that moment. And I remember I just sat down in the shower and I couldn't get up for a very long time and I just wept and I cried. My sister asked me to come over and to stay the night with her and she wanted me to sleep in her bed and I did so. So I headed over to the house and my sister obviously was a widow all of a sudden at 32, and she was overwhelmed and in this state of bewilderment and sorrow. And I remember we fell asleep, we got some hours of sleep that night, but the next morning when we woke up, I'll never forget the conversation when I opened my eyes and she was looking right at me and she said, Melissa, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Like, you believe that, right? She said, "I, I think he could raise Jody." I think Jody could come back to life today. And in that moment, y'all, she deeply believed that. And I remember just holding that moment with her. But I knew Tiffany had it in her to face this new life. I knew she had it in her to grieve this, to be able to move forward. But she didn't know she could. But I knew she had to figure this out for her own sake and for her son's. And so I thought about that movie. I thought about how in the courtroom, when Carl is ready to give up on the new life that is afforded to him, De Niro's character is there. Not to give Carl something he didn't already have, but to passionately remind him of his strength that he has inside of him. To be open to face not just this death, but to be open to this new life. And so Robert De Niro stood right in front of him saying, you have enough in you to take the next step and then to be able to take the next step. And that is all my sister needed in that moment, in those days to come. That's all most of us actually needed, not to know what this new life would look like, but to be reminded that we have it in us to face this one step at a time. I wrote a song. Um, Out of that experience called Next Step, it ended up being the title track off a record that came out for me in 2009. And that record was so healing for me and my family. And for many, I mean, it sold not thousands, but hundreds. Engaging as Anna talked about this creative process that we have called the tree of life. I walked by the jars that held your tears this week because we keep them in the lobby during the week. And I walked by and I just figuratively held them. I just held what you are carrying and what you are desperately trying to put down. And then I walked outside and I looked at those trees and all the ribbons that are tied to the tree. And I celebrated you and being involved in this process, but more so, I celebrated how we are sowing goodness into this world that we do not just stop at our roots. So, I want to think about this, worry about this idea of the tree of life and this practice and what it represents for us. See, the tree of life, it's used, that phrase, all throughout our scripture. Uh It's used in Judaism and Eastern Christianity. Tree of life stands for the love of God, it's symbolic of that. The phrase, the tree of life, is associated in our culture with our interconnectedness, not only with humanity, but with all of creation. The tree of life is also used and associated in science, with evolution, and with growth in our world as well. So when I was exposed to this artistic idea of writing down our griefs um, on our tears and on this paper and then tying ribbons by my friend and fellow worship curator Gary Rand, I knew that this was going to be a powerful spiritual process for us if we would choose to engage it. See, so often we get caught up in theory and we get caught up in thought, and we need practices like this to be able to embody these. We need practices like this to be able to integrate our thoughts and our ideas into our real life. And that is what this represents. See, there's this beautiful cycle. We're talking about the cycle of life. There's this beautiful cycle built into our world, built into nature and our seasons and built into us. And within our seasons and our cycles, we've come to realize that joy and sorrow are never fully separate. That joy and sorrow, um, joy is hidden in sorrow, and sorrow is sometimes hidden in joy. That they are two sides to the same coin. And it said also that joy and sorrow are the parents of our spiritual growth. So within the human journey, eventually we come to recognize this cycle of life and death and the new life again. It's what Saint Augustine called the Paschal Mystery or the Paschal Cycle, and it's represented when he says that in the journey of Jesus and Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. It's also known as the path of descent. It's known as the way up is first down. It's known as the idea of letting go, letting be and letting come.
2: So no doubt we've
0: thought about this cycle of life, death, burial and resurrection in Jesus. It's something that many of us have believed in and continue to believe in in some form or fashion when we're thinking about the life of Jesus. But that's not my question for us today. My question is, my challenge for us is: have you seen this as a way for you? Is this your philosophy of life? See, because there's a difference again in talking about the things we believe and actually letting those things be the way we actually live. And so my challenge and my challenge be: how do we embody this? And I know it's daunting for us to think about this cycle of going through life and death and burial, and then new life again. We'll go through it countless times on our journey, but I believe if we can wrap our heads around this concept and recognize this pattern, that we can then better accept it and grow from it when we experience it, which we will, which we will. But if we're honest, most of us don't wanna talk about death. We don't wanna think about death. The idea of death is a scary one. We have much fear wrapped up in death and in dying. And so whether we're thinking about death as actually literal, which some of us have experienced with our loved ones, or figurative deaths, we speak of death in whispers. We don't want to face it. We don't want to encounter its reality. But we will. Whether we want to or not, we cannot avoid death in our life. And so rather than avoid death, the Christian story is asking us to confront it. It's asking us to accept it. It's asking us to realize that death is but a comma or a semicolon more than it is a period. Darren... Darren, yesterday, Darren went and got a, I'm just telling your story for you, um, she went and got a semicolon tattoo put on her wrist yesterday, and if you don't know the story, Aaron Haley has one on it too, and I'm sure many others do as well. The story is you're reminding ourselves, uh, they're reminding themselves that this is not the end of my story, and so I celebrated you and your stance with that yesterday, Darren, yes, so this pattern, this pattern of down and up, this pattern of loss and gain, of estrangement and liberation, of exile and return, it's all throughout our scripture, right? We've read these stories. We are two weeks away from the celebration of Easter Sunday, and the Easter story is obviously specifically about the old way being crucified and something new being born. And as we've mentioned before, this is not a one-time event for us. So think about every time you experience a divorce like we just heard from Anna. Every time we experience the death of a loved one. Every time someone loses a job or experiences some shift in their external circumstances. Something is dying and something is trying to be born. So I want to start off by just looking and thinking about the Paschal cycle of Jesus so we can better understand what it actually represents for us And so Paschal Cycle starts off with Good Friday. We're going to put it up on the screen. So Good Friday represents both the pain Jesus endured on the cross and the surrender he made to his death. So the practical application for us is our recognition of the pain we are facing and the willingness that we must have to endure it. See, we can walk through our sufferings. We can We can make it through our pain, and we need to know that as we do so, though, a loss of ego is going to take place and a loss of our plans. There is a letting go of control. The next thing that happens is Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday represents Jesus's burial, and the practical application for us is the needed time of grieving and mourning the death that has just occurred in your life. Listen, Saturday is sometimes the most important day, however, it's seldom focused on. We cannot get to our Sundays and our resurrections until we walk through this and take time with this. So next is Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday obviously represents the resurrection of Jesus and the practical application for us is the new life and a new hope beyond all former ways. Something else has now been born in us. It reminds me of this Mexican proverb that says they tried to bury us, but they didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize we were seeds. Coming next in the paschal cycle is the 40 days that happens after the resurrection. So the resurrected Jesus is said to have walked this earth ministering, loving, and living in a new way for those 40 days. So the practical application is a time for us to learn new behaviors. It's a time to practice our new choices and adjust to a brand new lifestyle. See, there's always time built in for us if we would but recognize it. This is not a quick adjustment or something we rush through. We can give ourselves then some grace and some patience for the process. Next in the cycle is the ascension. 40 days after the resurrection, the story goes that Jesus is said to have ascended from this earth into the heavens. And for us, this is a time of acceptance. It's a time for us to stop telling the uh, stories of pain and hurt and of the past and let them go so that we can grow. So this is a powerful opportunity for us to choose to refuse to cling to the past and to make commitments to move on. And this also this section right here, when Jesus ascended, you'll realize in the story that this also felt like a loss for them because they didn't know what was next. They thought that this was the end of the cycle and they wanted to hang on to him. And yet he said, let me go. Okay. It continues to feel like loss. Finally in the Paschal cycle is Pentecost 10 days after the Ascension. That is when the story goes, the spirit descended upon the apostles and the other followers of Jesus. So the practical application for us then that this is a time to celebrate the indwelling spirit, the ground of all being that God is ever present in our lives. And now we also celebrate that our truest nature and our capacity has now been exposed through this process. We realize now at Pentecost in our life that we are more than we were before. We can start to recognize then this new energy, these values and these virtues and this power that we innately have to be able to fulfill our new purpose for this new season. And then the cycle continues and the process can start all over again. So this Paschal cycle, it's a part of the church calendar, it's in our liturgies, it's a part of our celebrations. But I'm gonna ask us today, whenever we pay attention though to Jesus's passion, his death, resurrection, and ascension, I'm asking for us to see it also as the undercurrent of our lives. So we have to start and hang out for a minute and think about first our times of death and suffering, specifically these winter seasons of our lives. When things get cold and things go bare, it feels very hard. We feel restricted in these seasons. Life is seemingly buried deep beneath the snow. And something that I want to note right away is that these deaths, these seasons of winter and death, they can be both voluntary and involuntary. We can walk ourselves right into death based off of our own choices and our own doing. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes but also we can find ourselves at times handed a load that we never asked to carry and fought hard to never have to hold. That is an involuntary death. But either way, death is messy. It's not easily dealt with. It's not easily processed or cleaned up. It takes time. It takes emotional uh, attention and it takes healing. And so for our involuntary deaths, life doesn't ask us if we're ready for this. Life doesn't ask us if you're ready for this fall, that's about to happen, or if you're ready for death or for darkness, no, it just happens. And so the people that are sitting around you, they're facing deaths, they found out about an affair, they lost their job, someone found out in the last week that their brother has cancer, they found out that they couldn't adopt like they want to, they find out that their parents are not going to accept the union, this marriage that they're about to walk into. You are facing death, and I often want to remind us of that so we realize sometimes the pain that's going on in the people around us. See, we don't have the privilege of making the decision of whether or not we want these things to happen at times. Well, we do, however, get to decide what do we do with this. How do we deal with it? What is our role now? How will we handle this devastation? And at best, sometimes we try to hand off our death, right? We try to get rid of it. We try to hand off our suffering to someone else, but the reality is they can't do our work for us. We have to do it. So sometimes we seek comfort in medication or in drinking. We do anything to try to numb ourselves so we don't have to feel this pain. We choose to ignore sometimes and just hope that all of this is gonna go away. And hear me, this isn't about shaming you or me for those choices, every one of us does that. We've all been there, we're all seeking ways of self-protection and ways to cope because none of us wants to follow this path of descent. So many in these moments, we can't imagine that there's even further to go than how we already feel in the depths of our despair. We can't imagine that there's anyone else or anywhere else we can go deeper than how we feel right now. And so instead we hang on to this pain. We hang on to this part of our life. We set up camp here in our pain and in these deaths. And it's there that Dr. Brené Brown says, here too many people, instead of feeling hurt, they act out of their hurt. Instead of acknowledging pain, they inflict pain on others. Instead of risking feeling disappointed for a moment, they choose to instead live disappointed. See, so many of us, we get stuck. So much so that pain becomes a welcome companion because it's the only companion we think there is. And I have to note right here that for us to realize that this cycle, this experience, is not just experienced in a vacuum. This process is not just limited to you or me as we go through something. The longer that we put off facing our deaths and dealing with our pain, the more that those around us, our loved ones, are affected We don't intentionally try to bring them down with us, but we are connected. We talked about it earlier. There is an interconnectedness in this life. And so we need to be reminded that this process is not just about you and me. It is always about us, but it is here. I know this is hard stuff that we're talking about, but it is here that we recognize that there is opportunity for transformation. See, we don't need to get above our deaths. We don't need to try to escape our deaths. We must go deeper into them in order to understand so we will grow. So instead of clinging to our pain, we can open-handedly hold our pain so we can begin to see it. We can begin to analyze it and become curious about it and reflect now, what is mine to do? What is mine to do? See, think about it. We can't let go of something until you open up, right? And so this process, this posture right here, this is about surrendering. We sang it in the song earlier. Brian reminded me of a movie, um, which I'll explain later because I need to watch the movie, but he came up in the midst of worship to say, do you hear this? This is what I watched last night. And I said, oh my gosh, this is what we're talking about. This posture of surrendering, which is exactly what is taking place when you open up and start looking at your death and look at your pain. And this is when true transformation can begin. Now, the cycle began um, exactly when things started to fall apart. And we can either help this cycle move along or we can hold it back by not choosing to deal with it. But if we open up and surrender, we will begin to move through this and grow. See, life is always inviting our souls to a deeper level. Don Scholes, where are you, Don? He's over here. Don reminded us this week in a book club that life is our greatest teacher. And if you only knew just a glimpse of his story, you would know the power behind that statement. And I said to him in book club, I think we can interchange God in that phrase with life. Not because I believe that God is causing these deaths to happen, but I believe God built and infused into this universe is always trying to teach us I think about that verse that says, God is working all things together for our good. We focus on the good in that statement, but I think we should focus on the working and realize that that's the operative word there. And not just that God is working, but that we have work to do to move through this. Because if life did not come at us with hardships, most of us would not go deeper. Most of us would not go deeper. We would not go to new places. We were at Disney World two weeks ago, and it took forever to me to convince Haven to actually ride some of these fun rides. And when she finally did, she was literally the first one. She was Space Mountain, Thunder Mountain, I mean, all the roller coasters, and she loved it. But fear was holding her back, right? And that's just a simple little story about that, but fear holds us back at times. And it's not because we think that we are content with where we are, but it is that we are comfortable. It's not that we think that this is our best life, but we aren't willing to step into this. And so life brings us this death. Life brings us this opportunity for descent. The mystics called this catalyst of change, they called it fire or darkness or death, emptiness, abandonment, or even evil. Because whatever this is, it does not feel good and it does not feel like God. So I think we often fight it because it means that again, we have to give up control, which again we think we have in the first place and that is only an illusion. And when we do let go, finally, we get disoriented. As I talked about my sister at the beginning, she was so disoriented with her new reality. That is part of this process because what happens on the other side of death does look very different and there is a reckoning that needs to take place. See, resurrection carries with it some qualities of life from before, but there's also something strikingly new in it. See, notice with Jesus, it was not a resuscitation of his body. It was a resurrection of something new. Big difference. It's not just a resuscitation of the old. It is a resurrection of something new. It is an awakening and an emerging with new light. And births are not clean either. Deaths are not clean and births are not clean. Have, clean. have you given birth or have you been in the room? Okay. Yes. Okay. It is sacred and it is messy. Yes. I was thinking about a couple of years ago, Ben and I, no, I bought it. He didn't buy it. He doesn't like animals. Um, I bought this thing, <laughs> this butterfly kit where you get this larva and you get this net cage where you get to hatch your own butterflies. Did any of you do this? Yes. Okay. So you hatch your own butterflies. We were so excited about this process. And what they don't tell you is when those butterflies emerge, there is a red blood-like liquid that goes everywhere. It stains the net. Okay. It's called meconium. I had to look it up. It's called meconium. It's the leftover part of the caterpillar that was not needed to make the butterfly. See, some things are left behind in transformation but back to the gross thing, meconium, it's stored. Listen, meconium is stored in the intestine of the butterfly and expelled as the butterfly emerges. Very similar to the human birthing process, y'all. When you are pushing that baby out, other things sometimes involuntarily get expelled. (laughs) Don't look at me like that, that's real life, okay? So back to these butterflies. So we were hoping that it was all going to be, wow, beautiful. Look at these butterflies. And instead it was, ew. Okay, because not just deaths, but births are messy. You cannot skip to that fresh, clean newborn until you go through the process and some of it gets you messy. So if we think about this idea of resurrection as merely um, awakening, it could give you this simple mind picture of just an easy transition of opening your eyes and stretching to welcome this new day, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about new life, and I'm talking about emerging, which implies a fight and a struggle, okay? Emerging takes effort. It takes work and we need to realize that this morning. There is a breaking free because you finally grow too tired of being withheld any longer. And I wonder if any of you are there this morning. You are too tired of being withheld, so there is an effort and a breaking uh, breaking free. And with each new layer that you shed, more light breaks through. And there is a truer self that begins to rise up after each of these deaths do their work. And we will find ourselves then each time with more compassion, each time with more freedom, with more love to offer, not just ourselves, but the world around us. So, my question is this morning, what part of your life that you had no choice in feels entombed today? What part of you feels dead to yourself and to the world? And what would happen if you let that part of your life teach you something, transform you, so you could rise into a new way again? And are you ready for that kind of rising? Now, before I talk about the deaths that we bring on ourselves, I wanna show us a six minute video and it's by this Sikh activist and lawyer, Valerie Kerr. And it it was taped last New Year's Eve at an interfaith meeting. And I wanna show you, although this video has some political underpinnings to this message, that's not what I wanna show you and why I wanna show you this morning. I wanna show you it because of her heart and her passion and how she speaks to this cycle of death and rising again. Watch this.
2: Vaikurjika Kalsa, Fate. On Christmas Eve, one hundred and three years ago, my grandfather waited in a dark and dank cell. He sailed by steamship across the Pacific Ocean from India to America, leaving behind colonial rule. But when he landed on American shores, immigration officials saw his dark skin, his tall turban worn as part of his sick faith, and saw him not as a brother but as foreign, as suspect, threw him behind bars where he languished for months. Until a single man, a white man, a lawyer named Henry Marshall, filed a writ of habeas corpus that released him Christmas Eve, 1913. Mm. My grandfather Kehar Singh became a farmer, free to practice the heart of his Sikh faith, love, and oneness. And so when his Japanese-American neighbors were rounded up and taken to their own detention camps in the deserts of America, he went out to see them when no one else would, he looked after their farms until they reached, they returned home he refused to stand down
0: That's right.
2: in the aftermath of september 11th, when hate violence exploded in these united states and a man that i called uncle was murdered mm-hmm. i tried to stand up i became a lawyer like the man who freed my grandfather and i joined a generation of activists fighting, detentions and deportations, surveillance and special registration, hate crimes and racial profiling. And after 15 years, with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I thought we were making the nation safer for the next generation.
1: Mama.
2: And then my son was born. On Christmas Eve, I watched him ceremoniously put the milk and cookies by the fire for Santa Claus. And after he went to sleep, I then drank the milk and ate the cookies. I wanted him to wake up and see them gone in the morning. I wanted him to believe in a world that was magical. But I am leaving my son a world that is more dangerous than the one that I was given. Because I am raising, we are raising a brown boy in America. A brown boy who may someday wear a turban as part of his faith. Uh, And in America today, as we enter an an era of enormous rage, as white nationalists hail this moment as their great awakening, as hate acts against Sikhs and our Muslim brothers and sisters are at an all-time high, I know I know that there will be moments, whether on the streets or in the schoolyard, where my son will be seen as foreign, as suspect, as a terrorist. Just as black bodies are still seen as criminal, brown bodies are still seen as illegal trans bodies are still seen as immoral, indigenous bodies are still seen as savage, the bodies of women and girls seen as someone else's property. And when we see these bodies, not as brothers and sisters, then it becomes easier to bully them, to rape them, to allow policies that neglect them, that incarcerate them, that kill them. Yes, Rabbi. The future is dark. On this New Year's Eve, this watch night, I close my eyes and I see the darkness of my grandfather's cell and I can feel the spirit of ever-rising optimism in the Sikh tradition within him. And so the mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America. What if our America is not dead, but a country that is waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing behind us now, those who survived occupation and genocide? Slavery and Jim Crow, detentions and political assault, what if they're whispering in our ear today, tonight, you are brave? What if this is our nation's great transition? Mm. If we don't push, we will die. If we don't push, our nation will die tonight.
0: push, breathe and push. Okay. Deep growth and transition and transformation is accompanied by work. It is accompanied by work. And so sometimes quickly, sometimes we walk into situations and we realize that we are facing moments of death because of our own choices and our own doing. Okay. Brene Brown, who we reference her work a lot. She references this quote often from Theodore Roosevelt, where he says, it is not the critic who counts, The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but one who actually strives to do the deeds who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So I want to think for a moment and expand on this idea of being in our arenas. I want to think about that moment of that person who is face down marred by the dust, that person who is face down in the arena of their life, and many of us are there today, right there. We feel face down in our own blood, sweat, tears, and shame because of our own choices and our own doing. And Listen, I'm not worried about what got you to this place. I'm not worried about, I'm worried about reminding you that this is not the end of your story that you face down in the dirt, that this is not over yet. Now, there's plenty of people in your life who think that it is the end of your story. There's plenty of people in your life that are in the stands of your life, those who have not walked a mile in your shoes, and yet they judge you. They criticize each and every one of your steps. But those people, listen to me, those people are in the overflow and the cheap seats. And be reminded, this is your arena. This is your arena and you need to be selective about what feedback you take into your mind and your heart, because there are people who will get down into the dirt with you. There are people who will step into that arena no matter what you've done, no matter what brought you there, who love you and value you period. And when those people speak truth and love, listen, Okay, that is who we wanna listen to. But those other people who are hurling insults like confetti from their private boxes in the stands, they keep themselves at a safe distance from us. Um, They pretend like they haven't been in the arena of their own. Okay, those people, when they proclaim opinions over you, those are the voices we do not honor, okay? Those are the voices that when Dale, where's Dale? Dale Wigdon, he has this meme out that says, bye beloved, that's what you say. Bye, beloved, okay? We're not gonna listen to you because here in this moment, listen, here in this moment, face down, you realize that it is a risk to get back up. You realize that it feels like a risk to rise again because after our mistake, after our fall, this idea that we should dare to stand up in our own worth and our belovedness is daunting. And So plenty of people stay right here. They hide in the mud. They stay face down in the dirt and the death of their mistakes. And I realize it's because it's hard work to face the repercussion of our actions. Listen, it is hard work to make peace with where you are and not question who you are. It is hard work to make peace with where you are and not question who you are. But when we do this, When we do that work, that is when grace floods that arena. When grace floods that scene upon our awareness of our compliance with our frailties, forgiveness always rushes in. See, grace and mercy and forgiveness, they're always waiting right here on the sidelines of our life. And they're not being held back by some unforeseen hand of God. No, they're always there, simply waiting to be invited by our own souls. They are the Calvary that we can always depend on, that when we are face down, they are the strength that we have access to, to actually rise up again, to actually arise up as new and as better than we were before. And that is what I want to instill in us today, this willingness when we face the death of our own doing, this willingness to rise up again. I want us to realize that yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we fall and we fail. And now is our opportunity to rise and live ourselves into a new way of being. The cycle, friends, it happens over and over and over. This death and this darkness and this suffering will come to us. But it does not have the final word. With every new opportunity for life and every rising will come a fuller realization of um, this responsibility that we have to our lives and to the world around us. Because this true freedom that we will attain, true freedom always attracts. True love and deep love always focuses on something other than itself. In our book club, we were discussing this idea um, of perfection that many of us grew up in, that perfection is something that we need to strive to achieve. And yet for many of us, when we can't achieve that idea of, per- of perfection, we carry so much shame with us. So what if the goal was not perf- uh, perfection, but ex- uh, instead acceptance, and it was evolution and growth, that with-, with every cycle of life that we go through, we will become a little less naïve. With every cycle of life that we go to, we'll be exposed more and more to what it means to be human and be our best selves for this season. I want Josh and Anna to come. She's gonna sing a song over us. I was listening to an interview this week with William Paul Young, and he mentioned this um, art called kintsugi. And kintsugi means uh, golden joinery or golden repair. And it's the art which repairs broken pottery with gold. It infuses gold into the cracks of the pottery. And so, as a philosophy, it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of the object rather than something to disguise. So, what if? What if we lived our lives and we told our stories and we didn't hide our deaths? What if we were as bold as Anna was this morning? She's not celebrating that divorce, but she's also owning it, and she's saying, this thing no longer will have power over me. It is a part of my story, yes, but I am living again. A similar concept is in Japanese, uh, a Japanese worldview called wabi-sabi, and it's a concept on the idea of centering um, and acceptance of transience and imperfection. Richard Powell says, wabi-sabi, just try to say that, wabi-sabi, it's real fun. Okay, wabi-sabi, it nurtures all that is authentic by acknowledging three simple realities, nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect. That is comforting to me. And so I ask this morning, can we accept that there is wisdom and beauty all along our journey and there is growth opportunities all along our journey found in the dying and in the rising? There's a Latin phrase called Felix Culpa. It means, oh, happy fault. Sarah Allison said this week, if you think about fault lines, Fault lines happen when they join. Uh, Earthquakes are caused, but then out of those earthquakes, mountains are formed. Fault lines, they rupture, right? And then volcanoes erupt and then islands are made. There is a constant evolution and creation that is happening constantly. This is the way of the universe. This is the way of God. This is the way of our soul, forever unfolding into new forms that are better than what it was before. Listen to this song.
1: age and so it...
0: is dying, what needs to be buried, and what needs to rise again. Would you stand with me? Let me read this this over us. (laughs) We look with uncertainty beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers to a softer and more permeable aliveness, which is every moment at the brink of death. for something new is being born in us if we but let it if we but let it we stand at a new doorway awaiting that which comes daring to be human creatures vulnerable to the beauty of existence and learning to love may we welcome may we accept may we grow through these cycles into our best selves for this time and know that this process will always continue. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. amen.